Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. Developments in privacy sometimes go so quickly it is almost impossible to keep up. You may have heard some rumors about new cookie rules in France, or yet again a set of approved CCPA regulations that Virginia has adopted a new data protection law, but not yet have had time to actually means to you. Or maybe you have fully offline, and even missed a rift that threatens to tear apart the European Data Protection Board. No worries, serious privacy has got you covered. This week it's just Kay and me, and we are happy to provide you with an update on all that has happened in the past couple of days. Or all... maybe almost all. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So, Paul, I love it. We are on one of the episodes where it's you and I, by popular demand of our listeners, to make sure that... Just one- discussing the week in privacy. Exactly! Just shooting time of what's been going on, getting people caught up, looking at the practical level you need to know of what happened. And by the way, speaking of at demand of our listeners, thank you all all so much for going on and giving us such fabulous ratings in your favorite podcast app. I think Apple is the main. But if you do have, please also feel free to write a great comment. We love the comments too. You you email us, you text us, you message us. So please feel free to add it. It really helps the metrics or the algorithms talk about AI and privacy people to see the podcast, which is really good. So here we go. A question today might be interesting, but chronic problem and interpret that however you like a minor but chronic problem. Like people not taking their shopping buggies back to the store when they're done taking it out to the car. That's just (laughs) irritating. So I guess that's you done. Or was this just a random example? That was a random example. It doesn't bother me. Okay. (laughs) Not to Mm. mention I call them buggies rather than carts or baskets, but you know. Trolleys. Shopping trolleys. trolleys. They are trolleys. (laughs) There, There we go. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. Ooh, I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> this is a hard one. Probably not having enough hours in the day, but I would consider that as an answer within this this category of question. I will say one of my biggest irritants is when I'm driving people who don't use blinkers. Yeah, I, I think people who are biking who don't indicate with their hand where they are going. Because you have a whole lot of bikers there. We do here in Arizona, too. You're right. So minor but chronic problems. I like it. Apparently, according to a lot of people in a uh, session I was in this morning, the cookie banners that pop up are minor and chronic problems. (laughs) So sick banners. Well, they're just plain annoying. (laughs) 
All right, let's move on to the, the hot banners. news of the day. Yes, cookie <laughs> banners. As we're talking about cookies, what's happening in the EU, Paul? Well, this is this is this should be old news, but apparently it's not. The French Data Protection Authority, the CNIL, last year already came out with new guidance on how to set cookies properly. And start enforcing that as of April 1st. So in May 2018, companies starting to realize that maybe they need to their cookie banners or the way that they deal with cookies or that they have their settings or settings to ensure that they remain sort of compliant with. And to be honest, all of this guidance is nothing really new. It is things that you could have seen coming for quite a while if you follow the legislative, you look at the privacy and the national implementation, if you look at what the Working Party 29 and the European Data Protection Board have said, if you see what the courts have said, most recently in Germany, when they... Are, are you saying people should have seen this one coming? Yeah, to some extent, <laughs> to some extent. Let me let me give you some, some highlights of what the French are actually going to start to enforce. Okay. First of all, explanations on what kind of cookies you place and why you are doing that. So you need proper notification. Okay. And if your website is in French, that means that that notification also should be in French. Which is a no-brainer, but... Apparently, it's still surprising for some. Are you saying that there are people out there upset? Yes, apparently people. But it is clear according to the website of the French DPA now, before setting any cookies, the website provider needs to inform your manner what cookies are placed and for which reasons. That should, for example, include whether personalized advertising is taking place, if advertising is geolocation, if content is personalized, and also if data is shared with social networks. And also, the other main point highlighted by the French is the so-called non-consent. So not providing consent should be as easy as providing consent, which we also already knew from the consent definition in the GDPR, which should be privacy. So if consent is possible with one click, it also may be possible with one click. And that those buttons should be identical from the word reject or, or approve. But I mean, you cannot have a very bright color. Got it. You can't have one that blends into the... You cannot, you cannot nudging. Like that. Nudging. You cannot have the, the bright gold splashy button saying accept all and very opt out of everything. Got that it. is not allowed. They should be identical. And that is also something that was said by the French of last year. It's said by a German court in December of last year is not allowed, which makes sense because it is all about individual user control. So those are, are the highlights of the cookie guidance that they will start to enforce. But indeed, if our listeners have cookie banners on their website or if they are using set and donors yet, which would be a surprise, but still throughout the year. I like it. So that was just my rant on cookies. That was your rant on cookies. We got things going on with cookies over here, too. Really? Tell me. But not, not as much fun. I guess it's not really cookies. It's more of the opting in and opting out kind of thing. You reminded me of it when you were talking about it because the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, has come out with yet another set of regulations. This is set number through a review or anything. And yes, my dog's barking, so I might repeat that. So apparently minor ones that aren't substantive changes don't have to go through review and comment period and everything. So we just get these publications of woohoo, new regulations. But there is an opt-out icon and it's blue and white. 
Uh-huh. And I don't know if you have to use it. No, you don't. It may be used in addition to the notice. And the icon shall be approximately the same size as any other icon used by the business on its web page. Okay. Well, that's... There we go. We're, we don't have to. It's nice to have a standardized icon. I, I agree. But... It's nice to have a standardized icon. It'd be nice to have standardized symbols for basically everything. And I know they keep trying to roll out icons for privacy notices, and it, it's not really taking off my idea of, of ratings. But, you know, one mm-hmm. day someone's going to come out with some really good software that does that. The other thing is, as you were saying, the map out has to be as easy for as being up. It has to be simple. So also there, no nudging. No nudging. I think that is a trend that we'll see more and more regulators around the world that insistent approach. And of course, cookies and auto tracking technology have been used for a very long time to make money over the back of consumers, of, yeah. of individuals who visit websites, tracking them from page to page, building profiles, selling those profiles for lots of money. Field of commerce. I mean, multi-billion dollar field of commerce. Exactly. And I think regulators feel it is time to step up and to actually actually start protecting the individual by making sure that they are treated fairly and about fair treatment of consumers. Then, of course, also the Federal Trade Commission starts to look around the corner and might be able to help with some multi-billion dollar enforcement action along the road if that doesn't happen. It might be able to agency. And they just made their first appointments, which came out. And some of these names you may recognize. Most of them you could. So, so we have appointed Dr. Urban. She is chair of the California Privacy Protection Agency Board. She was appointed by Governor Newsom. We have John Christopher Thompson, who is, who's been appointed to the board. And he was appointed by Governor Newsom. We have Angela Sierra who is the designee of the Attorney General Becerra. And she was the Chief Assistant Attorney General of the Public Rights Division. So she's got some really good insight there. Lydia De La Torre is the President Pro Tem's nominee. And uh, she's very active in, well, all of them are very active in privacy. But I see her name a lot because she is co-director of the Santa Clara University's School of Law Privacy Certificate Program. So that's in, and then Vincent Lee is the designee of Speaker Anthony Rendum. Now here's the thing: everybody just loved me giving those details. We'll make sure to give you the link. But these are the five individuals who have been appointed to the board for the California Consumer Privacy Agency. So the CCPA will live on, even though the CPRA will take over. Exactly, and that would mainly mean that Jennifer. Urban would then be the, well, she will be the chair of the California Privacy Protection Agency Board. I'm excited to see this. I think it's going to be phenomenal. I think that's going to drive a lot of, we're going to see around the nation. We're all waiting on that. I know we've had a couple of class actions dismissed under the CCPA, uh, determining there was a class action. I think it was against Google and a breach that they had. And it was dismissed on the basis that the CCPA is not specifically retroactive. And California has precedent set that it has to retroactive or they don't apply. 
I'm very happy to see these nominations already so early in the day because this yeah. is part of CPRA, which in full won't apply until 2023. But this means that the board on providing further guidance and implementing rules and more regulations, but it might also be that getting they, it built, all that good stuff. Exactly. And that they can hit the floor running come the board when the CPRA will actually enter into application. So that is great news. Yeah, because I think I think they are starting their jobs. That is also the impression I got, yes. Which wouldn't make sense because there is a lot of work to be done by 2023. But I'm also excited to see whether or not they will, in the near future, join the Global Privacy Assembly and thus becoming the first full U.S. member to, to be part of the Assembly. Federal Trade Commission is, yes. of course, a member of the Assembly as well. But they have always been withholding on some of the votes because it's outside of their uh, their scope. I think so, because there is some very promising federal legislation that has been proposed that seems to have a lot of support by some major players. Let me pull that up. One of the things I wanted to point out as I was pulling up that about the federal law is requirements under the regulations for CCPA are very prescriptive, such as you cannot use double negatives in the notice to opt out. Like, don't not sell my information. You're not allowed to use double negatives. I love these very specific requirements. The federal bill that's very promising is the Information Transparency and Personal Data Control Act. It's the first one introduced that's comprehensive. It's by Representative Susan Dale Bain out of Washington, which I love. I mean, go out of Washington, who we're watching to see if they're going to pass it. And it's really interesting. It creates protections for sensitive information, which means it creates a definition of sensitive information. It gives additional rulemaking authority to the FTC to devise requirements okay. for personal data processing. It, it excludes uh, de-identified public information and employee data out of sensitive personal information. There would be enforcement to the FTC. And then if the FTC does not act, I think within 60 days, then the state attorneys general can take action. But there is not a private right of action. Of course. And it would authorize $350 million to FTC for privacy and data security enforcement. They also have a provision that privacy policies would have to be in plain English, be clear and conspicuous, use visualizations. <laughs> it would have to use visualizations where it could. And then every two years, entities would have to make public the result of a privacy audit from a qualified independent third party. Small businesses would be exempt from audits. So it's promising. Epic has signed on in support of it. So that's pretty cool, which means we all take the tactic that we're getting closer. Is it going to happen or not? And maybe this is promising. We've had promising bills. Somebody will propose some sooner rather than later. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. In any case, the debate is thriving. Who was it that came out and said that the, the replacement for the shield, the negotiations may take years? That was the EU Commissioner Reinders. He is the Commissioner for Justice. So in the end, the... Maybe he's trying to scare us so they move faster? Mm, I'm not so sure. I've been on a couple of calls where the replacement of the privacy shield was discussed. And one US representative said, well, we expected to have something within weeks or months. 
we are currently working 12-hour days, so we cannot do that for years. Well, I- I'm sure that went over well. <laughs> well, the way I hear it, what, what's currently being negotiated right now is, in the end, more going to be some sort of interim solution. What, anything about new standard contractual clauses? No, not that either. But also nothing on the U.S. side in terms of changing their example. And if you look carefully at the Schramm-Sue decision, what the expectation is, because with the current legislation, that is not just fixed with a, a new procedure here and there, at least in my humble opinion. So I think that is where Randers' comments is coming from, may actually take years, because his expectation probably is that legislative change is required. Right. And that might take a little longer. Yeah. And then we look where the European Commission has said, well, we do think the UK should be adequate. The European Data Protection Board will give their views mid-April in okay. about a month's time. And we'll, we'll need to see what the board, the UK's adequacy, the fact that the European Commission says this is enough, doesn't mean that the data protection authorities will agree with it. In any case, it's clear that the European Parliament right. doesn't agree with it. They are quite upset about this intention of, of the European Commission to award adequacy to the UK with all their surveillance taking place. And also, the UK is not really helping with one of their ministers, the digital secretary, Oliver Dowden, claiming this week that the UK is looking at revising their data protection legislation to make it more business friendly. And we also saw in the job advert for Liz Denham's successor that they want someone oh yes who is more business friendly the words fundamental rights protection don't even figure in the job advert so i'm not so sure whether the uk which will... which seems to have really tweaked the noses of everyone in europe well i think there were quite a few people who had their eyes set on that job or intended to apply but if you are just going to be the business-friendly fundamental rights enforcer, I can imagine that not everybody is too happy with that. It's going to change what the context is. I wonder if they're going to stick with that. It's interesting. It is going to change. And I do believe it may have an impact on this whole adequacy decision as well. Even if initial adequacy is given by the European Commission, in the end, all the others just give advice. But if the UK will really change their legislation or if they really fall short of what is expected from a, a data protection regulator, then that might be very problematic for maintaining that adequacy decision, provided that it is given in the first place. Oh, interesting. That will be exciting to watch, to see what happens there. And I wonder if it comes down to a case of they had to advertise the job because they need a commissioner. But it sounds like they may not have taken a very strategic approach to it, given some of the pushback that they're facing in Europe. But maybe some of the closed door sessions, kitchen table conversations we're not privy to, maybe it's not as bad as it may seem. It could be. At the same time, the UK clearly wishes to signal that they are independent from Europe now and that they can go their own way. And that could be, yeah, I mean, storm is rising be interesting to see what comes out of this, right? Could be interesting. Absolutely. And it, I mean, this is the first adequacy decision post Trump's too. Although there is another one on the horizon. Apparently, the commission is also getting ready to declare South Korea adequate within the next couple Ooh. of weeks. Well, that, that wouldn't surprise me because South Korea's privacy law is strong. I've said over my privacy career that the one regime I would not want to manage would be South Korea because it is very, very strong. 
No, they have a strong regime. And this has been on, on the books for, I don't know, four or five years that they've been talking with and about adequacy for South Korea. But apparently the, the deal is about to be closed. So we'll, we'll get one coming as well. Nice. That'd be something to look forward to. Absolutely. And then we have some fighting within the European Data Protection Board. Because again, again, oh, there is, yeah, there is again a lot of criticism from mainly the German DPAs on for insufficiently enforcing the GDPR against all the major tech companies headquartered in Ireland. And also Mr. Schrems is once again trying to up the argument, I guess, is the, the right terminology and or maybe in just incite the flames. So in other words, just go ahead and reserve spots for him for three through, I don't know, what, 37 or something? Probably. I don't believe we are done yet. I think we should just go ahead and do that. Oh, my goodness. Well, and I don't doubt it because he has started the nonprofit that this is his focus, right? This is what he does. I forget the name of it. None of your business. That's right. None of your business. And I think this is their biggest focus. I haven't looked at them lately to see if they have big funders or anything, but I know they have a lot of support because... You know, he's taking on the fight of not only the little man, the, the person on the streets, but he's also taking on the, the big tech companies. They do yeah. a lot of good work. I believe that I think that they have great people working there and that they have great causes that they fight for. Yeah. I'm just not always sure about their criticism on the data protection authorities, but that might just be also my personal background and understanding maybe... <laughs> The, uh, the DPA reflects in these kind of situations. But I do have a promise from somebody at Noip that they will come on the podcast later this year. Oh, interesting. When one of their other cases is going public. So we can't, we, we, yeah, when one of their other cases is going public. Well, and then back in Arizona, we've had a couple of interesting things happen here, which I never thought I was living in such a privacy hotspot, if you pardon the puns, on so many different levels there as Arizona. And we actually have had a few significant things happen lately that have made the news. And one of mm -hmm. them is we have a bill introduced that actually permit or restricts, whichever way you want to look at it, in-app purchases from Google and Apple aren't allowed to dictate what it is. So apps can select the, the mechanism or the provider that they want for in-app purchases. And so this has come up in quite a few states and has been lobbied away. But so far, it is surviving here in Arizona. So that's really interesting. And the other one is, is that our Supreme Court just ruled that a gentleman can proceed to file a privacy violation lawsuit under HIPAA against Costco under, st under state law. Okay, that you need to explain a bit more. Yeah, so HIPAA is a federal law. Mm -hmm. Not going to get into the details of what it takes to file a HIPAA lawsuit. There's, there's a lot of things. But this was interesting. I believe it started in 2016 is when the violation was. So it was with a pharmacy at Costco and it had to do with the prescription mix-up. He went to file a suit and they didn't allow it. It went to a pellet. I'm just going to read it here, it, that it upholds a 2019 state court of appeals ruling that the man filed after the pharmacist told his ex-wife about his prescription when she went up to pick up another prescription with his approval. So someone had gone in, picked up a prescription, the pharmacist told the person picking it up about another prescription, and that's a violation. 
HIPAA doesn't allow private lawsuits. There's immunity, all this good stuff. So you can't really do it. And so he wants to use HIPAA in a state court as evidence of a privacy harm because it violated HIPAA. Interesting. A lot of good details there. It's an interesting road. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, just letting it go through my mind. And basically, it, it like the, although it's a whole different topic, a whole different ballgame, but it feels like the Costeja case the, on, on the right to be forgotten, the initial right to be forgotten case, just went to court on and on to find a solution to his legal problem and in the end found it. Right. And with this one, it's interesting because HIPAA doesn't have a private right of action. A lot of people think mm-hmm. it does. It doesn't. The state attorneys general can take enforcement action under HIPAA, but there's no actual private right of action. However, what we have seen is using HIPAA as evidence of an error or another harm. Yeah, exactly. Using HIPAA as that foundation to, as proof and evidence against a different privacy lawsuit. So using it as the standard of care to say this is what they should have been doing and they didn't do it. So this was really interesting to see this. And I had not been following it going up to the Supreme Court. So now I've got to pull the case and I've got to read it because now it's remanded to a lower court for trial. So we'll link it in the show notes. Exactly. So now I got to pull it. I got to read it. I got to learn a little bit more about it see what it is. But you know me, I I love my healthcare. So (laughs) absolutely. The final point on our topic list for today was Virginia. Mm, Absolutely. We've mentioned before that Virginia has a new privacy law, or actually no, that Virginia has a data protection act, because it's so much more than a privacy law. It is a proper data protection act. It is a proper Data Protection Act. They passed it relatively quickly. It wasn't high on anyone's watch list. I mean, we knew Virginia was looking, but seriously, I think it passed within like two weeks. And it's really, it's really, really good. It has a lot in common with GDPPA, but it has a lot not in common with GDPR and CCPA. So it was passed and became law on March 2nd, 2021. It applies to entities that conduct business in Virginia with residents if they control or process the data of at least 100,000 consumers during a calendar year, or they control or process the personal data of at least 25,000 consumers and derive at least 50% of their gross revenue from the sale of personal data. So you start seeing some similarities here already just in the qualifications. Mm -hmm. So I start to see the similarity that I still have no rights in Virginia. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the biggest things. Neither do you. But they do have a sale of personal information. So very much like CCPA there, except for the sale range for money, whereas CCPA can be anything of value. Mm -hmm. What I really liked is the right for individuals to opt out of the processing of their data used for targeted advertising and profiling. Yes. That reminds me a lot of the e-privacy discussions we have here. And to just have an unequivocal right to say, no, I don't want to be targeted for any advertising, I think is a really good thing. Exactly. And what I also like is that they have taken on board some of the core data processing principles of GDPR. Yes. Like the need that businesses will need to ensure that the processing of personal data is adequate, relevant, and reasonably necessary in relation to the purposes 
for which data is processed. Hey, we suddenly have purpose limitation <laughs> in a U.S. privacy law, U.S. data protection law. Exactly. Because this is something that is missing from CCPA. Yes. And one of the things that I really like is Virginia really has a true data portability, too. Yeah, I'm not a fan of data portability. People claim there's a data portability under CCPA. It's really not. I don't know that in actuality it really works. No, I don't believe it does. But I like that it's there. True. That's true. <laughs> the fact that it exists is a good thing. Yeah, that it actually is portable. I agree. Still, I'm not a fan. <laughs> On a practical level, I don't know how much it's it's really going to help you. Hey, you're going to take my information from this provider and you're going to give it to that provider. And where that usually matters is banks and lawyers and medical care. And you can already get your information sent from mm -hmm. one to the other. But I like the fact that if they're going to call it a data portability, it is a portability and not just exportable is machine readable, you know, common language. True. The other thing I really like about the VCPDA, oh, that. we need a better abbreviation, but <laughs> the Virginia Data Protection Act is the, the mandatory data protection assessments. So yes. it is not really a data protection impact assessment. It is not really a privacy impact assessment. It is not really a legitimate interest assessment. It is all above at the same time. And you need it when you process sensitive data, when you do sale of data, when you are profiling or using targeted advertising and anything else that has a heightened risk of harm to consumers. So that is a broad yep. range of topics. And that makes... It is. That brings accountability into the mix as well, together with the data protection principles that have been included. Yeah, I was surprised that as far as they went so quick and so strong that they also didn't create a consumer protection agency. Mm -hmm. That was surprising, but there is enforcement. Or a private right of action. Well, private right of action is very controversial here. I know. I have a feeling a consumer protection or a privacy agency would also be controversial, but I don't think people really thought states were going to create a consumer privacy agency. So that that's interesting. There There is a penalty, $7,500. we are not quite sure what that applies to if it's per violation or per individual within the violation. And the only other one that really stood out to me was, I believe it's the requirements for the privacy notice. Mm -hmm. Dictating what has to be in the privacy notice is, to me, very interesting because we have very few requirements on privacy notices here. And I think going down the route of saying you have to have a privacy notice and you have to tell people that you do this to their data is really interesting. I was surprised, like everybody else was, that Virginia passed one, but I think it's fantastic. But I mean, you and I spoke before, I think last year, Mississippi was high on the list to actually pass one, which surprised me too. So sometimes these just come out of the blue. And apparently, Oklahoma and Minnesota are also high on the list for this year. Right. Of course, together with Washington, as always. So will three times be lucky for Washington? Washington just needs to make this happen. One of the things I will say before we sign off about Virginia is when it comes to these consumer privacy protections and what they exempt, I always think it's interesting. I say always. We have one state with a consumer privacy omnibus law, but whatever. <laughs> okay. I now always think it's interesting that they exempt entity levels such as HIPAA and GLBA 
if they are covered by HIPAA or GLBA, then they're exempted from this. But they're typically only exempt from the regulated data. And entities don't only have regulated data. They have other data. And employees may be exempt from Virginia, which is clear. Employees are exempt. They covered that part. I think B2B is also exempt. So they covered that part. But if you take HIPAA, there is data under HIPAA that relates to patients and their families that aren't necessarily protected health information. But entities have that information because they use it for other purposes. It's not necessarily here's a patient, here's not a patient. This is going to be challenged CDPA, applied to me or not. And we've gone through these examinations when it comes to the CCPA. They also had to keep throwing more exemptions in there and clarify what they meant. So I do think it's interesting, but I just caution that when entities look at this and they determine they meet the thresholds of the number of individuals or the amount or whatever they're doing, if you bounce up against one of these, then just consider, does it apply to your organization as a whole or does it apply to your activities towards that regulated data? Luckily, there are still almost two years before the law applies, January 2023. So there is some time to look into all of these details, as long as you don't leave it until the very last minute, of course. Well, you know, that's what everyone's going to do. Well, maybe... Because that, that's what we do here in the US, is we just leave it to the last minute because there might be a delay in enforcement or effective date or something. At the same time, with CPRA and CDPA and possibly the WPA and whatever other abbreviations you can come up with in the next couple months, all apply as of the 1st of January 2023. Leaving it all to the last minute might be a bit too much to handle. We'll sign off with this. Let's take bets. How many states does it take to pass a privacy law before you get to the center of the Tootsie Roll for a federal privacy law? Six. <laughs> that's going to be the bet that's going to happen. And that is an actual conversation a lot of people are having here. We know states are going to pass them. Where is your critical mass? And frankly, all 50 states and D.C. and territories have data breach notification laws, and there is not a federal data breach notification law yet. True. So, But what is your answer? I want a number from you, too. I'm going to say however many pass this year. So that leaves it at two. <laughs> yes. However many pass this year. That's what I'm going to go with because they're not going to really be able to do anything until we see how many pass. So by the 31st of December, 2021. Yes. But I'm going to say the conversation is going to get serious at four. Okay. Well, we'll see. It's going to get really serious. If we see two other states pass it, and they're, they're not consistent with what we've already seen, and it has to be an omnibus law, I think we're going to see some serious conversation on the federal level because this is going to impact business. And the federal will probably need to make sure that it preempts state, which is also going to be interesting because like countries in Europe, states have the right to be able to pass more protective laws on their particular level. So there might still be some differences in state law there. So that's going to be interesting to see play out. Meanwhile, Canada's got laws pending and Ecuador has some, some movement. And China, India. It's, it's an exciting time. It's an Absolutely. exciting time. So to our listeners, if you want to participate in this debate, if you also want to join the bet, 
just send us a note or even a voice memo that we can play as part of a future conversation in the podcast. Ooh, I was going to say we could roll out a Google poll, but I love the voice memo. No, 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 just voice memos. Thank you for listening to this episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us. And as Kay mentioned at the top of the program, do rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. Should you have any questions or suggestions? Do you want to be on the show? Or do you want to participate in the bet? Please reach out to us via seriousprivacy at trustark.com or via Twitter at Podcast Privacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol B. Until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey, listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>